It is now my pleasure to introduce our topic, our moderator, and our distinguished panelists. We all recognize that one of the most pressing problems we face today is the world economic situation. Closely related is Canada's place uh, in the future and in that situation. So far, since the fall of 2008, we, Canada, have escaped somewhat unscathed, relatively speaking. However, if our economy is to grow and flourish in these challenging times, we have to do better in relation to innovation, new ideas, and the development and marketing of the products of those ideas. Canada has an enviable record in this area. The telephone, leading-edge medical advances, energy extraction techniques, and notwithstanding a few service interruptions, the BlackBerry. <laughs> Minor service interruptions. Despite these successes, we lag behind our major competitors in a number of areas. If we are going to succeed and prosper as a country in this economic turmoil, we need to lead the world not only in research to produce the innovative ideas, but to develop them as well. It has been said so many times that we are great at the R, not so great at the, at the D. Improving how we innovate means bringing together the major components of our society, government, industry, and academia, working together in common cause. Now let me take a few moments to introduce our moderator and panelists. Before his retirement from his late afternoon slot on CBC, Don Newman ruled the TV airwaves when it came to political broadcasts. If the issue was not front and center on Don's show, it really wasn't an issue. And through it all, he displayed an in-depth knowledge of complicated matters, treated his guests with respect, and of course exhibited his wonderful sense of humor which helped us all through the tense debates. To discuss the many and varied challenges and opportunities of innovation, we have three people who represent the confluence of thinking needed to move Canada ahead. Roger Martin has been Dean of the Rotman School of Management for the past 13 years. Under his leadership, uh, the school has become one of the major forces in Canada in the area of innovative business thought. Dean Martin has received many accolades in this area, being named by Business Week as an innovation guru and one of the 10 most influential business professors in the world. Doug Musica is the Senior Vice President and Chief Science and Technology Officer for DuPont. Innovation must come from and be led by the private sector. In the competitive marketplace within which DuPont operates, it is a leader in innovative thinking and innovation itself, assembling researchers from all over the world to bring their expertise to address difficult problems in order to maintain DuPont's leadership position. And Ilse Chernicht lives innovation every day as the CEO of the Mars Discovery District. Mars brings together, under her direction, academic institutions, teaching hospitals, and talented individuals uh, across many sectors to create not only an innovation platform, but the commercialization of ideas. The creation of Mars itself is an innovative leap of faith, which has been a demonstrable success. All of our panelists have advised governments, industry, and academic institutions on ways to develop a culture of innovation. We're thrilled to have them here to share their insights with us. 
So I will now hand uh, the podium over to Don and our esteemed panelists. Please welcome them. Well, uh, thank you, Nick, very much. Can everybody hear? The microphone's on? Yes, good. Uh, thank you, and uh, it's a wonderful crowd. Thank you for the wonderful turnout, and uh, thank you for, uh, let me, on behalf of the panel, thank you for the generous introductions. In their case, uh, they were entirely accurate. Uh, in my own, uh, if there was an issue that wasn't on my program, it was because I didn't know about it, not because it wasn't an issue. <laughs> but it's nice, too, that it, uh, when I was in Winnipeg last week, someone introduced me and talked about the program. They said, please uh, welcome now to our podium the man who used to be Don Newman. So it's very nice that, uh, <coughs> for you to uh, welcome us that day, uh, that way today. Thank so let, let's begin because our topic is um, partly is the challenge of, of innovation. So uh, in a Coles Notes version, Doug, let me start with you. What is, what is do you think, the greatest challenge uh, for people and businesses in Canada who are innovators or who want to be innovators, but what, what is the major challenge or is there a single challenge they face? Um, I guess I'd, I'd highlight uh, uh, two or three things. One, uh, Canada has uh, historically underspent in innovation relative to peer companies in the OECD and relative to the United States, even relative to some of the emerging countries around the world. And so I think one of the clear challenges uh, in Canada is, and I say this is, a chief technology officer thinks the solutions to the world's problem is to increase its R&D budget in general. But in reality, this is relevant in Canada. If you look at Canada's business spending, it's at 1% of GDP or thereabouts in, in R&D. And, and that's really not going to take it to a place where it can be competitive with, with some of the what's going on in the rest of the world. The second thing I'd, 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 I'd point to, which is kind of an enabler relative to that, is we need to develop a innovative culture in Canada in the private sector and in the public sector that's different than what we've had historically. Uh, we, we have had the, the, the luxury of, of having a resource-based economy. It's driven a lot of what we've been able to accomplish on an economic front. Uh, we don't have a deep uh, innovation-based economy yet, and we haven't needed to have that yet. And yet, when we look at some of the challenges directed toward the future, uh, our dependence on commodities in Canada is too, too, too strong. Uh, being able to shift the culture to really wanting, wanting to compete on the basis of science and technology and innovation is something that I think needs to get ingrained in how companies uh, go about their work in Canada and how public institutions go about their work in Canada. So do you agree with that, Ilsa, and particularly talk about how that impacts startups? Because in, in, I know you put a lot of effort, your organization put a lot of effort into startups. So would you, would you agree with Doug, or do you have a different take? Uh, well, I think Doug uh, touched on you know, the reason why the imperative to invest in R&D and innovation has been uh, not front and center necessarily. Um, because we've uh, we've performed re reasonably well in our reliance on the resource economy, and we've known for some time that we needed to sh to shift from that focus. Um, but I think our biggest challenge at the moment is uh, you know the the uh, trap of complacency, um, because we have come out of this recession in a reasonably good position, and uh, one could be forgiven for thinking that you know things are okay and. Um, but I think we have, we're facing such fundamental shifts in the global economy that um, business as usual is just not going to get us there. Um, I think the other you know, sort of structural deficit that Canada has with, with respect to innovation is that 
Um, the unit of production in the innovation economy is a knowledge worker. Um, and we just don't have very many of them. And the ones we have are spread over a very large geography. So uh, we have to think of new ways to create sort of the, the critical mass of ideas, of capital, of talent, um, to, uh, to create those hotspots that I think are so critical to, uh, uh, to launch uh, you know, groups of startups in specific industries that can, can really be competitive on the global stage. Well, Roger, in the recent past, for a number of years, you've been doing it at the Rotman School, uh, studies on innovation spending, innovation commitment, and showing, uh, particularly just in terms of the payoff, that in the United States, for instance, uh, the average standard of living is about $10,000 a year higher, and a lot of that, I think your studies show, is because of the innovative economy they have compared to our own. Now, they're having a lot of problems and the president is telling them they have to be more innovative and they have to innovate their way out of their economic uh, difficulties. But uh, give me your thought on uh, what the other two have said, but also what your studies have shown in terms of why we're not doing better. Sure. Um, well, on, on the first part, on, on uh, what uh, Doug and Ilsa have said, I, 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 I concur I, with Doug on the choice of business uh, as to whether to innovate or not is a, is a critically important choice and our businesses are not choosing enough to compete on the basis of, of innovating. And I agree with uh, Ilsa's point on complacency. Uh, uh, I, I mean, in many respects, I think the enemy is, is a belief uh, on the on the part of senior executives in companies that they can they can do well and prosper as a company on the basis of doing what everybody else is uh, is doing after somebody else has has, has decided to, to innovate something. Now, I think we can understand why that might be a cultural dimension of Canadian business because that was actually a super strategy until uh, NAFTA, right? Because for all the service and, and manufacturing sectors. It was probably smarter to just wait and let everybody take all the take all the risks of figuring out its new stuff, and those people outside the country couldn't ship it in without paying a 40, 50 percent tariff, and so you could build a little factory inside the country uh, uh, to uh, to do that. So I think that has left a legacy in management in Canada still a little bit too much of this complacency that says we don't have to put innovation high up on the priority list as, as, as Doug uh, correctly I think pointed out you, you, uh, you need to. And, and it is, and, and on your second uh, part of your, your question Don, I mean we've come to believe in the, in the work we've done at the Institute for Competitiveness and Prosperity that, that our prosperity gap is an innovation gap. Right? We've tried to peel the onion and, and people think it's because we're in the wrong industries. No, we're in great industries. Uh, you know, we've got a great educational system. A whole bunch of the other things that people think are, are the problem just aren't. I mean, the one thing that, that Ilsa also pointed out, the spread, spread out and, and more rural, that makes us somewhat less prosperous. But other than that, the rest of the gap is a is a gap that uh, is because if somebody's working in exactly the same kind of company, in exactly the same industry in Canada versus the US, they, they have lower productivity, lower value added. And we believe that that is because the strategy that the company has pursued doesn't have enough uh, as much innovation uh, built into it. And that produces lower productivity and a lower standard of living. All right, so Ilsa, what can be done other than, I guess, hectoring and haranguing people not to be complacent, but uh, as long as they feel okay, they just consider that background noise, I think. What can be done to, 
to change that, that uh, view of Canadians that uh, we don't have to be innovative. Well, I think it is a gap in innovation leadership at, at all levels. I mean, we have to put uh, innovation front and center on our agenda and make it much more of a tangible um, um, issue in, in retail politics, um, even in terms of uh, linking it to you know, future generations of, of jobs for our children and grandchildren here in Canada in a, in a very tangible way. Um, I do think, though, that um, the, um, the changes that are afoot globally um, are uh, presenting an interesting uh, new impetus into our economy. And uh, we're see certainly seeing that at the sort of organic startup layer of, of new companies where um, a young generation is... Uh, is not necessarily feeling, you know, the, the prospects within established industries being um, available to them. Um, we have a high propensity of, of, of a high concentration of new, new Canadians here who bias towards entrepreneurship. And um, I think we have a great opportunity to begin to tap into this new generation of, of uh, business builders who are going to build businesses that are um, are perhaps um, you know more globally focused and more uh, targeting uh, new industries um, rather than you know being trapped in some of the cultures of, of our resource and traditional manufacturing economies. So you're in a big well. Go ahead. Sorry, I, I was just going to build off the point to, to say that to, to me there's a motivator that can come from both the positive side and the negative side. On the negative side, if people had an appreciation for the, the opportunity cost and the opportunities lost in not being able to uh, move to an innovation culture and what the ultimate impact that that's going to have on the Canadian economy, they would be more motivated to, to, to move in that direction. I think NAFTA, you know, the transition around NAFTA was a good example where many Canadians and our, our, our company was a, a, a subsidiary of a large multinational company. Uh, th those companies that adapted to having to move to a bigger market uh, sphere on a global basis did well because they faced that competitive threat. Those that didn't actually perished in the process. And, and I think the same is true relative to an innovation culture. So when you see what's going on in China, when you see what's going on in, in countries like Singapore, who are being very deliberate about driving an innovation culture in some well-defined domains where they believe they can have a competitive advantage on a global scale, that really represents a threat to the future of the prosperity of Canada, more so than what, maybe what we're feeling today. And then on the positive side, I would say the fact is if you get out and get exposed to the promise of what innovation can bring in terms of stimulating those students that are here today studying inter international business, uh, when, you, when you confront them with those things, when you get out in the world and see the opportunities that flow from all the challenges and problems environmentally on in the energy sphere in, in food and nutrition, for example, it can be a great positive stimulator to have move companies towards seeing that as an opportunity too. But in your own company, in DuPont, is most of the innovation, most of the research done outside of Canada and then moves back through the whole system to the various international units and, and, and not a lot of innovation is done in Canada by DuPont? Uh, I, I wouldn't say that, actually. I, I, I joined DuPont uh, uh, as a research scientist myself here mm -hmm. in the research center in Kingston, and, and Kingston had a, a very long legacy of making contributions to, to innovation that were relevant to DuPont businesses here in Canada in the pre-NAFTA era and then post-NAFTA outside, outside of Canada. So we don't have a huge R&D presence here. We, we, we spend you know, $1.7 billion on R&D on a global basis. We spend us, we, we do 
uh, probably 50% of that in the United States and then 50% distributed around, around the world. And, but that's the model of the future. It, it, it isn't to sort of work in an isolated sphere. It's to think of ourselves as global companies mm -hmm. and how to optimize the opportunities that exist on a global basis. So Roger, think of this in a, in a sophisticated way because um, governments have a hard time telling people who are going to vote for them within the next couple of years or maybe within the next couple of months. Uh, actually, things are really pretty bad and we have to, you may think you're comfortable and everything's okay, but uh, bottom line is within three or four or five years, uh, your kids won't have jobs and so forth. So how, how do we make this a public policy that governments can embrace and do governments have to have, is it taxation policies? Is it, is it grants that they should be making? Is it creating chairs of excellence that uh, probably have a further down the road impact than, than either tax incentives for companies to do it right away or even uh, pots of government money that people can reach into to do it right away? How, how, how do we manage that, that kind of public policy dilemma. Yeah, no, I, I, think it's, I think it's a tricky one because it's one of these kind of distributed things. We need everybody in every uh, country or every uh, company uh, to be a little more uh, innovative. I mean, I think I, I give uh, both the federal and the provincial uh, gov government here in Ontario credit for fixing a bunch of tax uh, aspects that made it expensive to do a lot of the investment in, in innovation. So I think that's, uh, uh, that's been good. I, I, I've come more and more to believe uh, uh, that, that if we want to break out, so, so the funny thing about, about this topic, right, is that the topic is about innovation. And most of the things that governments want to do are to replicate what other people have done elsewhere. So they're going to replicate what people have done elsewhere to create an innovative economy. So we're going to have the same kind of granting councils to do scientific research granting, and we're going to have all the same structures. And I'm, it's sort of a little you know, ironic. Uh, wh why don't we try to be different than everybody else? How about we actually teach innovation? Like, I would take, so these are incredibly smart high schoolers, by the way, I was talking to them earlier. We should look at high school curricula and ask the question, is there anything about what we teach them that is actually teaching them about how to innovate? And I think the answer would be almost definitively no, or maybe 1% or 2% of, of their time could be construed as that. Uh, why, don't we, why don't we teach that? And I'm, I'm kind of curious about this because Singapore is one of the smartest countries on the face of the planet from a policy standpoint. Uh, Singapore has got us at the Rotman School flying over to Singapore to create programs for teaching high schoolers innovation. That's a long way. Uh, we could actually kind of do that here, uh, but, but they're not interested. So you haven't been invited to do it here, but you have no, been invited, have been to invited Singapore. in Singapore, and we're doing it, and it's, and it's quite. Have, uh, and, and and also, they've taken their companies that are that they that they think are most promising and have uh, have possibilities for international competitiveness, and we're teaching them uh, uh, to uh, uh, to innovate. So, I mean, if a little tiny little place like Singapore can do it, it strikes me that maybe maybe we could break out of the mode and say if this is going to be an innovation century and it's all about innovation, maybe we could actually teach uh, uh, innovation as, as early as high school. I see Giles Garrison, who's the Deputy Minister of Planning for the uh, Ontario government, taking notes. So uh, 
Do you, do you want to give him your phone number now, or do you want to do that when we're through? He knows where to find me, I think, actually. <laughs> uh, when, when people come and they're looking for startup money, and, they're, and do they have to have an innovative idea for Mars to support them, or do they just have to have an idea that you think it has a business case but is not necessarily innovative? Um, well, we focus um, in, uh, in technology-based businesses, so information technology, uh, life sciences, uh, clean tech, advanced manufacturing, and so on, as well as social purpose businesses. So um, if you want to start an innovative new service business, you know, we're likely not the right place. Um, but uh, we are looking at uh, the entire pyramid of, of, new, of new ideas. Um, you know, many young entrepreneurs will have a first idea that may not be the disruptor. Um, but in the process of working through that idea and, and bouncing it against the, the market feedback, they may realize that this is not a good dead end, this is not a good place to go. But uh, if I if I uh, target the adjacent space, I might uh, I might find an opening. So uh, you can't be too prescriptive about who comes in the door, and um, a lot of it is actually um, introducing the process of, of um, innovation and entrepreneurship, which I think Roger is absolutely right. Uh, for many students, even when they reach graduate student level, uh, they've never really been exposed to uh, the path of entrepreneurship as a career choice. And um, so the more we can bring this earlier into the, into the um, development of our young people, I think uh, the bigger the opportunity for them to be comfortable and be, be more likely to take risks as they uh, plan their own careers going forward. Roger? Just on, the the one the one thing I'd just like to to say on the on on this point I, I I you know I love entrepreneurship my father was an entrepreneur I was an entrepreneur but entrepreneur we we have to separate out entrepreneurship and innovation I think to a certain degree to really move the dial we have to get all of our large companies being more like Dupont right that's that's actually that's actually as important and we I think that that sometimes in innovation we we focus too much on two things that are, you know, that are sexy and interesting, entrepreneurship and high tech, and the economies that are gonna win on innovation don't limit themselves to focusing on those, those two small areas. As I tell everybody, you know, uh, there are 1.64% of jobs in Canada that are in information technology, communications technology, biopharmaceuticals, uh, aerospace, uh, medical devices combined, right? The rest of the economy is other stuff. And so if we focus our innovation on that 1.64%, we'll, we'll skip uh, DuPont and say, well, they're not, in, we don't care about their innovation. Well, yes, they spend, you know, $1.7 billion on, on R&D and are innov innovative outside those four, or they supply into some of those businesses, but outside those, those four. So thinking broadly beyond startups, and beyond high tech, I think is absolutely critical to the innovation agenda. And I don't disagree with that, yeah. by the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, no, no, I know. I, just I think that's to... partly yeah. why the public policy challenge is such a, a difficult one, because there's no one thing we can do um, to easily fix um, the innovation ecosystem. It's a deeply interconnected system, and you need these new feeders and entrepreneurship almost as a way of life for people who join DuPont. Um, yes. um, and uh, you just can't, you know, can't fix yeah. just one thing and hope the well, rest I, will fall I, I think Roger and Ilsa have answered 
this question more or less, and I know you want to get in on this, but I'm going to take this question from the audience because I, it plays along with what we're saying. I'll ask you, and then I know you wanted to add on, but maybe the answer in the add-on will turn out to be more or less the same. Because the question is, the lack of innovation in Canada is primarily because of the socio-cultural paradigm and the education system that penalizes innovation. Your views. I think Roger gave us the example of Singapore and their social cultural paradigm, which obviously is not the same as our own. But anyway, uh, do you want to add, add that to your uh, whatever you were going to say? See, see if I can weave, weave the two together. It's a, I interpret that question to be a little bit uh, about what I referred to earlier, and that is whether we have a culture in Canada that's, that's, uh, that has a very strong innovation component associated with it. And, and frankly, I, I don't think we, we do. And part of that is, is to weave it back together. To me, where innovation and entrepreneurialism comes together is both require the, the capability to take risks. And we're frankly risk averse in general, and we look for safety nets to be able to protect us more so than other other countries do. I, I just spent the last most of the last five years in China, and we lived on a street in in uh, in, uh, in the old French concession, where they had little shop fronts that were maybe six feet wide and maybe ten feet deep, and those th those things would start up with a new young entrepreneur every day uh, every day of the week one would start up and then you'd go away for a month and you come back and half of them would be gone but it didn't matter because they'd be starting up a, a yet another wave of people would would be coming with a spirit of entrepreneurialism and risk taking and accepting the risk that you could could fail was just part and parcel of the whole of the whole game and and in fact in in innovation and in an R&D in general and, and frankly, you see this in Canada a little bit historically. In the last you know, couple of decades, we've had spurts of companies that have done marvelous things innovatively. Nortel was one of them, RIM is another one. But they're spurts. And, and in fact, when you're managing innovation, you have to have a portfolio of things, and you have to accept that some of the part of the portfolio is going to fail, and some of it's going to be successful. And, and that's the part, I think, that's missing inherently in our culture. We look back for, well, if we fail, that's failure. Whereas in an, a truly entrepreneurial and innovative culture, failure is the lesson you learn to go on to the next uh, adventure. But in the two examples you gave, uh, one turned out to be a colossal failure after being a huge success. And the other is, no one's wanting to talk it down, but the fact is it's in difficult times too. So um, should, we, should we even worry about that? Or should we say, you know, as RIM succeeded Nortel, something else is going to succeed RIM, and that's, that's the way it works? Should be accepting of that, that one will come yeah. after another. In fact, and our company is over 200 years old, and we've had to uh, move from a, being a gunpowder company to being a, a chemical company to being a life sciences company all through the course of that. And so that, nor, that is a normal transition that takes place. We shouldn't see the Nortel ex experience as being a failure. We should see it for its success, particularly if it creates a, an environment where drawing, drawing more people into seeing the business as Nortel did, and that, that is a, a dynamic global environment that uh, had a, a tremendously intense period of development. And then they weren't able to transition to the next la layer. And so they weren't a failure in that sense. They were simply a failure in, 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 the, in the context of being able to build on that foundation to something that's got more longevity associated with it. Ilsa, let me ask you this uh, question from the audience. We are speaking generally about innovation within a country or within an organization. But what about open source development or innovation? Where does this fit in? Um, I think open source is uh, certainly a really important part of um, 
of a new wave of, of innovation, and there's lots of different uh, ways in which it manifests itself, uh, um, you know, in the, uh, in the corporate sense of, of even seeking innovations outside the formal uh, internal R&D setting to uh, now fairly bold new initiatives we have here in Toronto, the Structural Genomics Consortium, which is one of the world's leading open source biology labs uh, with significant funding from uh, um, pharmaceutical companies for pre-competitive research. So, so I think open source is a, is a new force on the, on the landscape and I think we have a lot of challenges ahead in terms of balancing the right emphasis on intellectual property protection um, and at the same time allowing the open source movements in various different uh, sectors to, uh, to bring that sort of grassroots creativity into the, into the innovation system. Roger, what is your take on availability of pools of capital and the willingness of, of Bay Street, for instance, to take a, uh, an opportunity or take a chance, I guess, on the opportunity of innovation paying off in a big way? Because I have had some people tell me uh, there's not enough capital here in terms of pools of capital. That it's uh, obviously not New York, it's not Los Angeles, it's not Chicago. Uh, but also that um, by and large, uh, again, we may be conservative in the way we do our innovation, but we're conservative in the way we invest and that it's, it's a tough sell uh, for innovators. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a tricky, uh, a very tricky issue because the, um, there's all sorts of excitement about venture capital. We need more venture capital and venture capital is so important, et cetera. Uh, and if you look at the history of venture capital, it turned out that, that uh, in the 80s and 90s, <coughs> venture capital was a spectacularly great investment. So if you uh, put money in a fund, any, the average fund in America in, in any year in the 1990s up through 1998, your average compound annual return after you paid your fees with 54% per year, which means you made an extraordinary amount of money being in, in, in just an, a bog standard average fund. <laughs> Since 1999, uh, if you put money in a fund that was raised in 1999 or any year uh, subsequent in, in America, <clears throat> the highest return, if you pick the best year, the highest compound annual return was 3.2% compound annual for a very risky investment and the average across those years was zero, right? So less than T-bills for an extremely risky investment. So I think what's happening, um, I used to think that Canadian venture capital was, was per performing way worse than U.S. venture capital until, until I studied that pretty closely and, and it isn't the case. The model is broken. The model of financing uh, young companies is now, I think, officially broken. And, and the question is, what's the new model that's going to emerge? And I think the era of you give your money to a venture capital firm, you pay them 2% of assets under management, 20% of the upside for a five to seven year fund that's self-liquidating is gone. Uh, and it, is, it ain't coming back. <clears throat> and so we have to ask what we need going forward. And I think it's gonna be one more lean startups where, they, where they're gonna to have to get to get, spend their money more carefully and get to cash break even faster and more groups of angel investors, not, not uh, funds. And so what I would be doing from a tax policy standpoint is encouraging direct angel investing, not building more pools of venture capital uh, funds because I think that, that game played its way out and 1998 was the last good year for venture capital in North America. <clears throat> Uh, Doug, let me 
tie this into something I was th thinking of uh, anyway. Uh, the question from the audience is, uh, patent trolling is a growing phenomenon, both in Canada and worldwide. How does this, uh, this uh, phenomenon st uh, stifle innovation? And should public policy directly address this? And uh, we know that RIM in its few years ago had a long running patent fight in the United States that probably went on longer than it had absolutely had to. Uh, but beyond that, the RIM is now making a point that, that patents are, are a, basically a national security asset in, 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 in the country that holds them. So patent trolling and are patents a national security asset and how would an international company like DuPont see that? Yeah. I don't, I don't know that you could generally say it's a national security asset, but clearly management of intellectual property is becoming more and more complex in many different dimensions, including, including the one on, on patent trolling. Um, what I, I think is important in, in, in an innovative environment like the one you'd like, we'd like to create in Canada is to have um, a, a good, strong uh, a, a patent processes and processes that can deal with intellectual property expeditiously. The, the United States just a couple of weeks ago um, established a new patent law that's, that if it's resourced correctly will actually facilitate companies being able to create and, 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 and be guardians of intellectual property and in fact be able to uh, uh, um, ensure that their patent estate is not, is not uh, attacked in, in spurious ways. And so I think patent trolling is a bit of a strategy that, that, the, that certain, certain people are, are using, but that can be managed relatively well. What's really fundamental is to have a, a patent estate and environment where, where you can, you can, you can uh, ensure that your, your uh, intellectual property is protected, litigation processes are expeditious, uh, patent licensing or patent examination processes work in a really efficient way. Roger? Yeah, just quickly, I mean, I, I think this is an area where <coughs> patent uh, law is just totally, totally screwed up. And we have to, I think we have to do, go back to two things. One, originally you actually had to deliver to the patent office the thing that, that, that you wanted patented, right? And then it changed to, you have to, all you have to deliver is, is what you purport to do. Uh, and that's, that's, that's allowed craziness in, in patenting, so you can get lots of things patented uh, that, that uh, I think constrain the public domain. And second, patents were never, ever, uh, was never a device that was meant to support your ability to enforce a patent that you weren't using yourself, right? The whole idea behind patents was if you create something, DuPont creates something, and then uses it to produce a great Kevlar, uh, somebody else can come along and produce Kevlar uh, uh, too, uh, that DuPont has that protection, right? But if DuPont never produced Kevlar ever, uh, there was no public policy or no rationale that said they should have that patent uh, forever. That's bad for humanity. Uh, and so what we have, the problem we have, is that you do not have to use your patent Right? And that's what, be, that's what begets patent trolls. And, and this is a complete perversion of the, of the original intent of, of uh, patent protection. And I think we just got to rip it apart completely and start from scratch on, on patents, in my view. Before we go on, thank you for your questions. I have way more than I will uh, ever be able to pose. And uh, so please don't send me any more. And I will try and... <laughs> <clears throat> But I'd be glad to meet with you later and give you my answers if you have any. <clears throat> oh, nobody wants that. Oh, okay. Um, 
I, Ilsa, I want to start with you on this one because the question is, would you list uh, as Canada, Ontario's comparative advantages in a global innovative economy? In other words, what are our comparative advantages? Uh, and the question says, presumably those are ones we should focus. Are there comparative advantages or are good ideas the comparative advantage and, and using your brains to think of them as the comparative advantage? Or are there uh, basically uh, comparative advantage traditionally in economics is thought of you know whatever resources you have to exploit that's your first comparative advantage and you add value to them but um, I read somewhere the best asset you can have are good brains and those can be distributed anywhere so is there a comparative advantage in, in terms of innovation or is it just good thinking? Um, well I, I think we have to look at this sort of at uh, the bookends of um, um, of the way uh, Canadians make innovation choices I mean certainly Although it sounds like a, um, a, you know, a motherhood statement, Canada's incredibly diverse um, and Ontario's incredibly diverse population is a huge asset. Diversity is one of the, the primary inputs um, in the innovation process. And I think one of the transitions we're going through now is our default setting in innovation has always been to look south of the border because a growing and healthy U.S. market had an insatiable appetite for our stuff and our whether they were innovative or not. Um, and I think the transition we're going through now, and if we can actually mobilize our diversity to begin to do business in a truly global way, um, that would be a huge differentiating advantage for us. Um, I think the other um, unique opportunity for Canada is to, is to really take advantage of our kind of um, middle power um, on the global stage at the moment where um, where we have a, a relatively stable um, economic platform. Uh, we have the opportunity to collaborate and partner uh, with, uh, with other countries, with other jurisdictions, with other companies, and create a kind of a new model which takes advantage of the globalization of, of innovation and to some extent the commoditization of, of R&D. Um, and so, um, but, but the answers to all of that won't fall in our lap and I think I think there's hard work to be done. Uh, we were just talking over lunch at the gutting of manufacturing jobs in Ontario over the last five years. We need to do the work to figure out what is the manufacturing opportunity for Ontario, for example, in this next generation of, of innovative businesses. Um, and then I think at the other bookend of our um, cultural avoidance of picking winners, um, our SHRED program is a good example where we you know, we, we don't want to select. We'd rather use, use tax instruments to, um, to have companies benefit from, uh, from government investment rather than direct investments. And in fact, we're a real outlier there. Um, the problem with that is, is uh, we pick by default. Um, in fact, one could argue that a very robust uh, industry of shred consultants pick the winners for us. Um, so, uh, so I think it's not just what we choose to do, it's also what we avoid doing that's important. Roger, a um, number of questions that basically boil down to this. Uh, how do you teach innovation to young people and at what age do you start teaching them? Well, I, I, think, uh, I think you could start teaching as, as early as elementary school. I mean, I think uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a process for innovation 
uh, you know, we teach to M MBA uh, students in, a, in an organization called Design Works. It was it was designed. The intellectual property was designed uh, together with Procter and Gamble uh, to transform their innovation uh, capability. And so it's just it's just teachable. It's teaching them. It's teaching them a few things about about understanding users. Uh, visualizing ways of serving those users and building those into economic models. There are just three pieces to it, totally teachable, uh, and it's just not taught, you know, virtually anywhere. Um, and and I, I'd be I'd be intrigued uh, uh, to uh, to do it. Uh, we're we're working working at it at the high school level now. I, I'd be intrigued to uh, teach it at the elementary school level. And it's not, and I'm not saying don't teach all the other stuff we teach them. Yeah, we got to teach, teach them the, uh, the basics in the, other, in the other fields. But again, if in this modern kind of educational atmosphere, I think we're, we're teaching to tests and teaching to, and, 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 and teaching people not to make mistakes. And, 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 and you know, we're part, part of the University of Toronto's part of the problem. We say, unless you get a 90 average or some super high average of the sort I could have never gotten, you can't get in the front door. And so everybody's making sure they don't make mistakes and stay on the straight and narrow in class. Um, so part of it's cultural. It's, 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 it's teaching them that it is okay to try and make mistakes, as Doug, as Doug said, make some mistakes to, to get to uh, good answers. But you can teach innovation. It's dead simple. And Doug, a last question for you, which in a way cuts to the chase. Um, the questioner says, we understand the need for innovation, but is this a viable job market? Are there opportunities here? So I guess the, the, the really is two parts to the question, although I'm reading that in, as they say in the Supreme Court. Um, the first is, are there jobs doing the innovation? But I would think uh, if the innovation is successful, there may be more jobs in using whatever the product or whatever the technique or whatever the innovation has produced uh, down the line than there are in actually doing the innovation itself. Yeah, and that to me is a kind of a chicken and egg question is what comes first, uh, people coming out of universities that know how to do innovation and going into Canadian companies where the culture change to be, changes to be more amenable to, to incorporating that as a primary strategy for companies or do you have to have the environment first? And I, and I think what you need to do is promote both of them in parallel and, and hope that they really do come together and they start to spiral in the right direction. And, and you do see this in places where, you know, innovation has, you know, the famous ones are, of course, in Palo Alto or Silicon Valley or, you know, in the environment in Cambridge uh, around MIT and Harvard where the, the, the company structure, the university structure, the raw materials of innovative, creative people that come out of those institutions come together and they start to go in the right direction. So you have to do both in, in my view. Well, one good way to measure the success of a panel is to review the questions unanswered unposed and unanswered, because that means that the audience has been fascinated and interested and uh, wishes it could go on forever. I join the audience in that. I wish it could go on a lot longer. Thank you, the three of you, on behalf of the Canadian Club for providing your insights on this very important topic. Thank you very much. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Howard Brown, and I've been asked to thank both our moderator and our panel today. Um, very interesting discussion, and I think we've all benefited from it. Clearly, as Don said, when you have that many questions left still to answer, we should maybe stay here for the rest of the uh, afternoon. But realizing our tight schedules, I'll be brief in my comments. I've uh, 
wanted to thank both our moderator, Don Newman, and our panelists, Dr. Ilsa Trunick, Professor Roger Martin, and Dr. Doug Muzika for a fascinating discussion uh, on the public policy challenges and opportunities of innovation. Don, as usual, you've helped crystallize the discussion and allowed our panelists to provide us with really what is a roadmap, which hopefully will allow Canada to develop that innovative innovation culture that we so readily need. We are fortunate to have each of you here today teaching us and putting forward ideas in such a thoughtful way. We look forward to having you all back on our podium again. On behalf of the Canadian Club, we want to thank you all for your participation. And I'll now turn it back to Nick Chambers for your closing comments. And again, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Howard. Thank you, special guests. And once more, thank you, DuPont, for making today's event possible. This concludes our television programming, uh, which has been broadcast on Rogers TV. We're grateful to Rogers TV and 680 News for their continuing promotion of Canadian Club events. To learn more about the Canadian Club and our upcoming events, I remind you to visit us at www.canadianclub.org. Thank you all for joining us. This meeting is now adjourned.